Welcome to Take My Advice, I'm not using it. I'm Ollie Henderson and this is episode 5 of the Work Life Podstorm. Today's episode was written on Friday the 5th of June 2020 and it's the first of a two-part series in my Future Work Life newsletter about personalisation of work. Hope you enjoy. I spent much of the last five or so years of my time at my previous company, a digital advertising agency, debating the relative benefits of personalised ads. We live in an era of personalisation, certainly when it comes to our digital lives. The most successful platforms are those that learn what we like and what we don't like. What gets us excited and what makes us bored? What motivates us and what makes us angry? The question this raises for me is why personalisation isn't a thing in our work lives. The vast majority of jobs come not just with a title, but a description outlining the day-to-day expectations and including prescriptive previous experience. We're also used to understanding career progression linearly, as though there is a single route to career advancement if only you follow the laid out path. My observations and predictions on the future of office life and future work life three provoked several interesting conversations with readers. Some lamented the loss of the positive aspects of the workplace should we see a significant shift towards distributed work. Other people were excited by the prospects of remote working hubs as innovation centres. I also referenced a new positive type of gig worker. In control of their destiny and knowing their true value, they would design a career that offered truly flexible work and maximise their earnings potential, as opposed to compromising it as is too frequently the case now. As with other aspects of work-life design I've discussed during this newsletter's first month of life, personalisation, or to put it another way, playing to the strengths of the individual, presents opportunities for employers and employees alike. Even more so given the uncertain and unsettling short to medium term effects of COVID-19. Next week I'll be considering how we can personalise jobs, but today I'll look at a couple of interesting macro trends that I anticipate seeing more of over the coming years. Sealancing. We tend to think of gig work as the choice of low income workers, but the economic principles behind it are theoretically positive. Number one, employees who would otherwise be unable to employ somebody in a permanent role can recruit that talent and expertise on a short-term basis. Number two, workers have the flexibility to work when and where they want for multiple companies at once and, in theory, charge a premium. We're about to experience one of the worst economic downturns we've experienced in decades. We must therefore be collectively creative with how we allocate human capital to maximise value creation for businesses and people. To that end, gig work is likely to become more commonplace, which, if you haven't inferred from what I've said so far, doesn't necessarily have to be negative. In particular, one trend that I predict becoming increasingly common is that of the freelancing C-suite. Let's call them C-lancers. Before COVID-19, we were already in the midst of rapid change, the rate of which has now multiplied immeasurably. These changes already demanded a level of adaptability and innovation in business leaders. Add to that a need for specialism as market competition increases in the face of the economic downturn. So arises the need for specialism among senior executives. Take a CMO, for example, chief marketing officer. Naturally, some CMOs tend to be stronger at some parts of the job than others. Category creation requires a different skill set than customer acquisition strategy, for example. Why have one CMO who is legendary at one and average at the other? Listen to podcasts with Christopher Lockhead and Mike Maples Jr. have a fantastic conversation around this theme. I'll link to it in the newsletter. Instead, we could see a world-class category creating CMO bring their expertise to multiple different companies at once, with one or more CMOs complementing them with other specialist skills. An outcome that would be great for the company and even better for the individuals who can leverage their market value. 
Companies like TopTown already exist to match top freelance software developers, designers, finance experts, product managers, and project managers with businesses requiring short-term resource. Expect to see new market entrants using this model and an emerging subcategory for freelancers. The passion economy. In 2009, Kevin Kelly, the founding editor of Wired magazine, wrote that creators only needed to earn 1,000 true fans at $100 per fan per year to make a living. The 1,000 fans model illustrated the opportunities the internet offered for creators to monetize their knowledge and creativity. I quote, to be a successful creator, you don't need millions. You don't need millions of dollars or millions of customers, millions of clients or millions of fans. To make a living as a craftsperson, photographer, musician, designer, author, animator, app maker, entrepreneur or inventor, you only need thousands of true fans, end quote. There are countless examples of people that have made this model work. My favourite is Ben Thompson of Stratechery, who has evolved his newsletter on technology and business strategy into a primary source of insight and analysis for those working in or in any way interested in the tech industry. Not only is Thompson a fantastic analyst, he's also pioneered a groundbreaking business model and is the embodiment of the idea that you can work from anywhere. While the centre of the industry on which he commentates is undoubtedly centred in Silicon Valley, Thompson lives in Taiwan. Does his location affect his ability to write knowledgeably and insightfully about tech? Absolutely not. The passion economy is the next iteration of this idea. I link to an article by Lee Jin in the newsletter. She's a partner at venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz, and she explains that the passion economy is the natural evolution of customer engagement. It offers creators the chance to develop an even deeper connection with their fans, who are, by extension, also their customers. Instead of charging a thousand fans a hundred dollars, why not charge a hundred fans a thousand dollars? Platforms like Substack and Twitch can now support people in this pursuit with minimal fixed cost and at relatively little expense while facilitating a recurring revenue model providing an alternative to ad-driven models like YouTube's. Most of us have something about which we're passionate or knowledgeable, and in many cases both. The passion economy presents an opportunity to share this with others and get paid for it. As Jin writes, participants in the passion economy are individuals whose skills and abilities were previously under-monetized or underutilized relative to their potential. New technologies and business models in the passion economy enable more people to unlock economic value from their creative skills and passions where they'd previously been hampered by traditional intermediaries and unfavorable business models. The enterprisation of the consumer can be a gradual process, starting with individuals exploring new channels for side hustles, with some eventually graduating to full displacement of traditional employment. In the next episode, I'll switch to looking at personalization trends on a micro level, specifically how businesses can utilize job crafting to engage employees. Until then, have a great day.